I like the fact that I uh, I open up <laughs> I open up my streaming window here, and the first question is Burton saying, "What beer are you having?" And uh, like even more that I was ready for it because I literally just left it open and untapped. It is a syndicate, Deeds, uh, the syndicate from Deeds Brewing, IPA, New England. Uh, I gave it a four on Untapped. It's not a bad beer. I'm, a, I'm quite happy with uh, with that. So actually, I think this is the first time I've actually done this in the evening for a while, right? I can drink beer, so it's a nice change. So anyway, yes, it is. Uh, it is evening again. It has just been a hellish week on uh, on many fronts. If I'm Honest on <laughs> details that I might not go into right now. Some of it I will go into because I'm having an absolute pain in the ass time with my network. But I'm going to go and talk about that a little bit later on. I'm going to kick off first of all with our sponsor this week. Sponsor is CrowdSec. Again, the open source massively multiplayer firewall. I spoke about CrowdSec. Pretty sure it was last week as well as other weeks before then as well. Respond to attacks and share signals across the community. Download it for free. Uh, and as I was saying, I'm pretty sure it was last week I was saying this, it does become a bit of a blur sometimes. It's, <laughs> it's like week what of COVID now, just being indoors doing the same thing. CrowdSec is, uh, it, it is an interesting model because they do crowdsource a lot of information that goes into, into the product here, uh, outnumbering hackers altogether. A little bit of the whole sort of swarm mentality, the masses, the collective of us is stronger than the individual's. And again, download for free. So go and give CrowdSec a go. Download their things for free and become part of that swarm helping to keep us all safe. Now, um, actually, when I talk about weeks of COVID, one of the things that that I've realized, a penny dropped, I'm going to a real live conference in person next week. I'm actually going to go to the OzCert conference. And OzCert runs here on the Gold Coast in Australia every single year. I have been... Most of the recent years, obviously not last year, it did get cancelled completely last year, but most of the other years I've gone along to that. And I actually got a bit of a shock because someone pinged me the other day and they said, oh, can we can we catch up at OzCert? And I'm like, what? <laughs> like a, a thing in person for real? Uh, and I got in touch with, with OzCert and I was like, hey, can I, can I come and do something? And then I can... You know, we can go to the gala dinner because that's, to be honest, that's a highlight for me. You go get a bit dressed up, go to the gala dinner. Uh, so Charlotte and I actually get to get out and and see other people in a professional capacity, which would be really cool. So anyway, I'm going to be doing uh, an AMA with uh, with a mate of mine called Adam Spencer. So for the, those of you outside of Australia, Adam's a, a pretty, I'd say pretty well-known TV personality, super, super smart guy. And uh, he often MCs OzCert. In fact, for as long as I can remember, he's MCed OzCert. Uh, and we've hung out a little bit around that. So I'm looking forward to doing an AMA run by Adam. I think it's going to be after the afternoon keynote with the uh, with the whole conference there. So that's going to be fun. No pressure at all on that one. Now, speaking of things like that, things like that, I don't know, exposure. <laughs> that's probably not as well I can put it. I did a really interesting interview uh, with a podcaster last weekend. A little bit different to normal, and when um, when when I was contacted and asked if I want to go on this show, I was like, yeah, yeah, because I say yes to pretty much everything <laughs> when it's like podcasts and interviews and stuff, mostly because it gives me a break from doing other stuff and I can just talk to humans, and it's just sort of, I don't know, I find that rhythm nice. It's like sit here and code and do other things and then stop and talk to a camera. So anyway, 
uh, I did this interview with a guy called Phil DeFranco. Now, many of you are like, oh, yeah, yeah, like I know who this is. I didn't know who this is. I'm a little bit out of, out of touch with that, <laughs> as, as, it would, as it would appear. But uh, I'm just looking it up here. It's Phil DeFranco, cybersecurity expert, Troy Hunt on cryptocurrency, VPN, doxing, Facebook, and have I been pwned, and a whole bunch of other stuff as well. And what I didn't expect when we sat down to do this is that it ended up editing down to an hour and 33 minutes. And it's a very, very candid discussion with, uh, with Phil. Turns out he is, he's actually a pretty, uh, pretty prominent guy. His YouTube channel here automatically plays video. Uh, also has 6.37 million subscribers. So Phil has some reach. Anyway, I did this video with him. It came out a couple of days ago. I love the comments on it. There's just some really, really epically nice comments. It uh, for the folks that have sort of chimed in on Twitter as well. Lovely, lovely feedback, and it's um, it's just really nice to hear people enjoying something as as casual as what it turned out to be with Phil. So go and check that out. I'm going to put it in the references, references, reference, <laughs> references links. It's just been such a long week. References links of this blog when I push it out as well, but otherwise it's there in my recent tweet history. So let me get on to the problems because the problems run deep this week. So I have been having, this is now going to go down the IoT rabbit hole. I'm going to talk about my problems and then I'll talk about some of my solutions. So I have been having lots of problems with my Shelleys. Now the Shelleys, if you've been following for a while, you'll know that I've got a lot in the house. I think I've got what did I figure it out? Something like 37 different Shelleys or something like that in the house. And they're these little relays. They sit behind the light switches. They turn the light switches on based on the internet or based on the switch itself. And it's great because it gives you both sort of internet and kinetic controls over the, the light. So I've got things like a, a sunset scene and all these lights come on around the house and the pool comes on and things like that. And I've got Shelleys in the guest toilet. Some people thought this was quite funny when they just seen like guest toilet with internet connected stuff. But the simple reason is, is that there's, uh, there's a switch on the wall, which I want to turn on the lights on the roof. And there's also a switch on the wall that turns on a fan, because sometimes you do need a fan on a toilet. Now, kids being kids, they're always leaving the freaking things on, like the whole time. This is just a toilet. It's not like a bathroom, right? It's just a toilet with a sink down in the sort of main thoroughfare of the house. So that's the one that gets used all the time. And the lights are always on. So I'm like, I will fix this. I will put a little motion sensor in the camera, a motion sensor in the toilet. And it will then not only turn on the lights when you walk in, but it's going to turn them off after like 10 minutes of inactivity. And it's going to turn the fan off after 10 minutes of inactivity or, or something to that effect as well. Uh, and that is a fantastic theory. It does depend on two Shelleys. And what I was finding is that my automations were bombing out in Home Assistant because some of the Shelleys weren't always accessible. Now, I didn't know necessarily why it was. Home Assistant did just push a big update, uh, which I took only one or two days ago. Didn't fix my problems. So I start to dig deeper today. And <laughs> it's one of these things where there's just lots of shitty bits of the picture. And you're trying to figure out why something doesn't work. And you're going, well, which shitty bit of the picture is it that is broken? Okay, that's a pun. I didn't mean to make the pun as it relates to the toilet. But I'm just out of patience and creativity. Um, I'm trying to figure out what's going wrong. And I thought, all right, is the Shelly contactable? So is it on the network? Can it be seen by other things? 
So I'm going through, and you, and you can hit any Shelly by, by IP address. It runs its own little web server. And that web server has uh, an API, returns a bunch of JSON. That web server also has a web interface where you can go and configure a whole bunch of different stuff. And what I was finding was that I just couldn't load the web interface for a lot of these Shellys. I could see it in my Ubiquiti dashboard. I could see the IP address, but I couldn't load the web interface. Not only that, but I couldn't ping it but it's in Ubiquiti's Unified Dashboard, and I'm seeing it there, so like, what's going on? So out of frustration, I, I get to the point where it's like, you know how you start running out of good ideas, so you just start trying bad ideas? And one of my bad ideas, it's not that it was so bad, but it really wasn't gonna fix it, was I thought, what if, what if we move away from having dynamic IPs on them, because maybe they're like roaming around, and then Home Assistant can't see them, or something like that. And I will assign them uh, static IPs, not static IPs on the device, but one of the things I've learned through this whole experience is it is much nicer to actually reserve an IP address in your network controller. So in, in Ubiquity, I go in and I just reserve IP addresses because then I've got one place which says, here's the IP that every device has. And to make things really neat, I assigned all of the Shelley's IP addresses that ranged from, I've got a little, little uh, report over here, 192.168.1.223, so from 2.2.3 all the way through to 2.5.4. I guess that makes it, what, 31 IP addresses? Uh, so 31 Shelleys. And part of the reason I did this as well is that then I just wrote up a little script that would just enumerate through them. It would hit them over HTTP. It would hit the JSON API, and it would return me the name of the Shelley, and it would also return the firmware version. Because one of the problems I've got here is a bunch of them needed firmware updates which ones? Didn't know. The app is an absolute piece of shit for Shelly. And I'll give you an example of this. So let's just let's just wing this. I will open up the Shelly app. In fact, well, let's just hard close it and we'll open it up again. We'll look at this together. All right. So Shelly app is opening. Still opening. Still opening. It's opened. All right. I was going to have a beer while I was waiting for that. Let's not not do that. Now, I go through here. These are all my rooms. And I'll go to something like the living room. And if I go to the living room, it says one, two, three, four, five different Shelleys. And it says that every single one of them is cloud disconnected or cloud disabled. But it's not cloud disabled. I left them all cloud enabled. And the main reason was because it if they don't appear in the app, you couldn't just go through and update them all via there's like a little update the firmware of everything button. Now, of course, what I've since done is a little script I wrote up. There's another API endpoint which will cause it to update the firmware. So I am thinking just cloud disabling all of these. And then the next time there's a new firmware version, I'll just run the script. It will go through and it will find every single Shelly and then it will just call the API to update this. How do normal people do this shit? That's what I want to know. So anyway, now when I click on anything, it says device offline which is kind of stupid because this one's like the hallway picture lights. But if I go and run my little script, which will literally make HTTP requests and hit every single one of these IP addresses to show me what's running, just before I did this, just before I did this call, yep, they're all coming up now. So every single one is responsive, but they don't show up in the app. But then the problem is it's responsive. I can load the web interface, so I've got one here that's on, on .232. What is this? Uh, uh, I don't know, but it is responding. Oh, the backyard fountain, because you've got to connect your fountain. And that's loading just fine. So I'm just sort of at this point where I don't know if it's the Shelly 
or the Ubiquity Network. And I've just tweeted a whole bunch of things and a heap of people have come back and gone, they've had problems with the Shelly, they've had problems with the Ubiquity Network, they're not really sure which one it is. And I'm losing my shirt a little bit about it because it's just very, very difficult to nail down. And then I started writing a tweet about, because someone said, oh, look, maybe it's the network. And it's like, no, every other device on the network behaves precisely as I'd expect it to. And just as I was writing that, I realized that I can't connect to OctoPrint anymore. So I've got OctoPrint running on a Raspberry Pi, controlling my printer. And for some reason, I haven't been able to connect to that by host name for quite a while, but I could by IP address. But now I can't seem to buy IP address either. <sighs> anyway, the IoT stuff is really good fun. I really highly recommend it. It'll definitely make you drink more anyway. Okay, now I will tell you something fun about IoT. Actually, it was something painful, which has then turned into something fun, which is going to bring me to this little device here in a moment. So I have for quite some time harbored a desire to uh, to connect my climate control, my air conditioning, to my home assistant. Now, this to me is one of the most practical things that you can possibly do with home automation, to you know, control your climate. Now, the problem is, is that this house was renovated about 14 years ago, is our best guess. Uh, now, we know this because all of the appliances which are now breaking, because apparently things like white goods and even we've got like one of those zip hot water heater things where you you know you get boiling water or cold filtered water in your tap uh you know that's dying as well you call it the manufacturer and you give them the model number and they're like holy shit that's 14 years old wow that's amazing it lasted that long so anyway everything dies at 14 years including all the holes in the roof that's another story <laughs> so um where on earth did i get to this okay air conditions so all about 14 years old. Uh, so this is well before the era of IoT, and you really can't retrofit anything to it without it being super expensive either. So I'm looking at ways of doing this, and I had Lars Clint over here last weekend, and Lars said it would be a good idea to get a Sensibo. Now, Sensibo seems like a really good idea because Sensibo is a little IR blaster. So if you've got an IR sensor on your aircon, which I thought I did, <laughs> turns out it's not a sensor, it's a light, if you've got an IR sensor, you can just blast the signal from the remote at the sensor. And it's a cool idea because you just connect the sensor to your to your network, to your, uh, to your home assistant. It's got a companion app. And then you just like literally use it like it was a controller, a remote controller. No biggie. I just returned it to JB. I finally gave my money back. So it didn't work. Not a problem. But what do we do? How do we make it work? And I'm thinking about all these options. And I was like, all right, I can't do anything with IR. Uh, it's a Daikin system. I called up Daikin and they're like, we don't think that our airbase system will work with this because it's so old. And then I thought about it, Moran. I went, what do, what do I actually want to do? I don't actually care too much about controlling the temperature. My use case is, particularly this time of year where we are well and truly into autumn. So we are, by, by Australian terms, about three and a bit weeks away from winter. But it's the Gold Coast. It's warm. Uh, Last night, perfect example. We didn't put the air conditioning on. I was too hot. And I was like, oh, man, all I want to do is turn it off. But other times, it's like it gets to 2 a.m. And I can see this from all my thermometers in the house now. But the temperature is just going down and down and down. And I really wanted to turn it off. So really, all I want to do is I just want to control on and off. Now, no, I'm not going to put a Shelly on it because I'm going to have two problems. There is a button on the front of the control panel. And this is a switch bot. Now I'm going to show you how the switch bot works. In fact, there's two bits to the switch bot. There's a switch bot 
hub. Now I have this plugged into my laptop at the moment for USB power just because I've been carrying it around. But this hub has a, has a Wi-Fi connection and it can talk to this little unit here. And what this does, I'm going to show you how it works by, uh, by triggering it from my phone. This is really, really cool. You'll like this. Uh, this is, what did I say? It was a SwitchBot. There is a Home Assistant integration for this as well. Now, it's got a little lever. So if you watch, I've got to put it near my head because the camera's going to focus on my head. But you watch here, we'll put it like that. There's going to be a little lever come out. I'm going to trigger it now. See that? So that little lever pushes the button. And then there's double-sided tape on the back. So you double-sided tape this sucker in the right position such that when the lever comes out, I'll do it again. Oh, wrong push the wrong button. There we go. See that? When the lever comes out, the lever manually pushes the button, which is really cool. But then it didn't really fit around my air conditioner right. So I'm like, okay, I can fix this because I've got a 3D printer. So I get my vernier calipers out and I measure everything and I print the first useful thing I've ever printed and this this is a frame which fits just perfectly onto the air conditioning unit and then what I'll do is I'll double-sided tape that just here and then the little button will come out and it will press or the little lever will come out and it will press the button on the air conditioner and then what I'll do why am I making my life so hard then what I'll do is I'll get another one of those little Acara Zigbee-based buttons, and I can put that next to my bed. And when I push the button, all it will do is it will trigger the switch, and it's either going to turn it on or off. But when I'm in the bedroom, I can always hear it. You can hear the aircon blowing out. So I'll know if I'm turning it on or if I'm turning it off. Isn't that a cool idea? Hmm. So let me read some of the comments, because I have only a few coming through here. Uh, David Thompson says, Are you using MQQT? MQTT, I think you meant. On the Shelley's... Uh, I think when using that, it disables cloud functionality. So uh, no, I'm not. I did use it very, very early on. And then I thought oh, I'll use one of the native integrations. In fact, I was using a, a, an integration via Hacks. But now there's a native integration, Home Assistant. And I was like, okay, well, this will be nice because it will just show everything up and it will be easier to integrate. But I'm very tempted to go back to a message queue because at least if the device isn't immediately contactable, you know, maybe it's offline for a moment or roaming across to an AP or something, at least the message will still get sent if it goes in a message queue. So I'm seriously thinking about that. That would disable cloud. But now I've got my little script to just enumerate through all the Shelleys anyway uh, and do things like, you know, do firmware updates, etc. So I'm thinking of going back that way. David also says... Can I use both the Shelly Cloud and MQTT? And I'm pretty sure you can't. As soon as you enable MQTT, you disable Shelly Cloud. Only with Shelly HTTPS is now, but should be coming in a future firmware update for other Shelly devices. Right, maybe, look, it's just software, right? So maybe they can do that later on. Roll says, uh, are they on a separate VLAN? Some update from UBNT broke routing between VLANs. No, they're, they're on... They're actually all on the same uh, SSID as well. I do have an IoT SSID and a non-IoT SSID, but they, they are all in the same IP address range, all on the same VLAN. Read my blog post on IoT as to why I haven't VLAN them. Because <laughs> Actually, it's a reasonable question because that's the sort of stuff that just unexpectedly breaks things when you start putting devices on different VLANs and trying to create firewall rules between them. So no, that isn't a problem for me. One thing that someone in the, in the Twitter thread did suggest is they said they were having issues related to Pi-hole. 
So for the first time in a very long time, I have actually uh, reconfigured my Ubiquiti network not to go via Pi-hole and just resolve DNS via whatever it is my ISP is using. So now I'm going to get bombarded with ads and all that crap. But at least I've sort of taken that bit out of the problem chain, for want of a better term. So we'll see. Alan ran into a bunch of issues with his Shelleys and Ubiquity, ended up creating a separate 2.5 gigahertz only Wi-Fi and having them connect to that. I'm just, that there has to be an underlying reason why that would make sense. And this is, this is what, what bugs me. It, it, it should just be you've got Wi-Fi and you connect all the things. And that the thing, again, that makes me just super suspicious about the Shelleys and not the Ubiquity network is that for the most part, with that Octoprint situation aside, everything just works fine. Now, having said that, let me rant about Ubiquity for a little bit, not data breach related. <laughs> I was trying to find where do you get the list of reserved IPs? And I couldn't find it anywhere. And I'm looking up stuff online and it's like, well, you just go into Insights and it's listed there in Insights. And no matter what I did, I couldn't find it. And then I asked on Twitter and people are like, yeah, it's in Insights. Can't see it in Insights. The new version of the dashboard, which is still toggleable between the old one, doesn't have either your reserved IP addresses uh, or any blocked IP addresses too. You can't get that. The only way you can get that is you've got to disable the current version of the dashboard, roll back to the other version of the dashboard, which is just a toggle in the UI, and then suddenly you can do it. Now, incidentally, as soon as I rolled back to the other version of the dashboard, my list of clients actually loaded properly without glitching, like, I won't say what I was going to say, but like glitching very, very badly. Um, so now it's, it's like Ubiquity has pushed this new version of the dashboard, but it's literally missing things and it's super, super glitchy. Now, trust me, whenever I see something like this, as much as I like the products, choose my words carefully, like the products that Ubiquity makes, and they do send me a bunch of free stuff, whenever I see something like that, I immediately send this back with some very candid feedback, which is exactly what I did today. Just look at my network, 136 IP addresses now. And of course, <laughs> that doesn't include the Zigbee stuff. Uh, all of that is separate. But... Just in case you're thinking, well, maybe you've got too, too many IP addresses, is it IP address exhaustion or anything like that? Well, no, it's, it's, it's definitely not that because, again, everything else other than Octoprint runs really well. Uh, Alan says, I love where you're going with this going low-tech solution. I, I think assume you're talking about the switch bot there. So, yeah, well, here, here we are. Um, he says, curious, does that make pushing the button hard by hand? It won't, and the reason it won't is if I sort of put this in the position it's going to be, position it's going to be in, it's going to be about like that. So for those of you that can see it, I'm just holding the switch bot on the back and the little levers here. Now that, that the button will sort of be where my finger is. So I'll always be able to go here and just push the button. It'll like it'll be a little bit clunkier, but it will still be easy to do. Uh, so we're not going to have any problems still pushing the button. That will be visible enough. And, and if it's not, I can probably fix that with like a, I don't know, a 3D printed hinge or something like that. Um, yeah, so uh, Donnell, Donnell, uh, apologies if I mispronounced that, uh, says MacGyver solution. Now, that was the, the word I had in mind, <laughs> the, the MacGyver solution. But uh, hey, if it works, and the only thing that doesn't, I mean, obviously this works and this works, the only thing that doesn't work at the moment is I don't have this in Home Assistant. I have got, if I go back to my Home Assistant for a moment, uh, I have got within Home Assistant, 
first of all, I've got too many tabs, like all of you do. If I go into my integrations, actually, it's not even in integrations. If we go into my entities, I have got SwitchBot now showing up in there. So you, you add uh, which bot? SwitchBot. SwitchBot. Oh my God, look at how many entities are not. Oh boy. <laughs> I've just, I just typed switch and I just got all of these entities with a red exclamation mark next to them saying unavailable because it's all the Shelleys that for some reason Home Assistant thinks it can't talk to at the moment. But then if I run my script again, it's going to tell me that it can talk. So I just almost feel like it's name resolution or something weird going on internally. Anywho, uh, if I go to SwitchBot, I do have a SwitchBot entity in here now, and I've got a little controller where I've got like a lightning bolt with a cross through it and then a lightning bolt without a cross. But the thing is, is that that SwitchBot is this hub. Now, I'm not sure how to introduce the concept. I imagine this would be like an entity on this device where you could then switch that on and off. Uh, I'm not too sure about that. Can I see it in devices? Do I have SwitchBot there? So, hey, if anyone can figure out for me, how do you add, they call this one, um, where is it? They call the little one here, they call that the SwitchBot bot. So the SwitchBot bot connects to the SwitchBot hub mini, and it's the SwitchBot hub mini, which I've got in Home Assistant. So how do I now get it to talk to the SwitchBot bot? That's what I've got to figure out. That'll be the next thing. Huh. Mark Lewis says there is a lot of love for those switch bots. Uh, switch bots. They do look awesome. I, I think what it is is it's just it, it's kind of it, it's such a simple thing, right? And in fact, if I pop the top off this, which I did before because I was just curious, under here there is a there is a battery uh, which is interchangeable. I'm not quite sure how long it'll actually last for. So there's there's what's in the top of that. Uh, it's got, um, I thought they were dip switches, but I don't think they are dip switches. It's, it's literally just a little cable in there. And it is a really simple mechanical device. It does seem to actually have quite a strong arm on it. So if you had a button which was a bit harder, this, this is a very robust little unit. I have wondered though, that if you were to tape that somewhere, and then this comes down, it, it does feel like it wants to lift. So I'm curious to see how long the tape actually lasts, but, uh, I was even thinking of 3D printing one a little bit different where this sat in, I could make like a little shroud across here so it would sit under there. So if there was force kind of pushing it up like that, we could actually keep it in with uh, with like a little hood on the 3D print. But yeah, look, they're super, super cool. So if you start to think about all of the things that you have in your home that have a button but have no other ability to IoT anything, suddenly you start to get options with these. So yeah, I think it's a pretty cool idea. Greg Thompson says the new UI is quite buggy, which of course would be the Ubiquity UI. Captive portal is broken too. It, I don't know what they're doing with this. I really don't know what they're doing with it. It just, I have provided that feedback. <laughs> I've been very honest about it. No Brain says, which 3D printer do you use? Do you recommend uh, Creality printers? I've got a Prusa. And when I started researching this back in January, and if um, some of you have heard this story before, but I was doing a big round Australia drive and I went and visited a, a childhood friend of mine and he had a Prusa. And uh, he was telling me about how wonderful it is. And I was like, ah, yeah, let me ask the internet about this. And everyone's just like, yeah, 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 they're epic. 
So Prusa, just as a as a brand and as an organization, just seemed to be very, very much on on our wavelength, the wavelength of, of many of, of you out there, which would be similar to me, very community-centric, uh, lots of people jumping in, helping out, sort of a very, a very kind of start-from-nothing kind of story and build up something big. So I'm super, super impressed with, with everything Prusa-related. There is a lot to learn, which I think would be true for any 3D printer, but there's huge amounts of support too. Uh, and I've ended up just joining a couple of the Facebook groups and I just see constantly things that are, are either amazing or all the dramas that other people have, which do help me when I inevitably have my dramas. So yeah, big strong recommendation for Prusa. Uh, Jean says, I've sent you a database and you've yet to add it to HIBP. All right, so let's talk about this for a bit. I have an absurd number of emails every single day an absurd number of emails sitting there with new data breaches. It, it almost feels unprecedented at the moment where you're getting such a flood of stuff. And I have things to do. <laughs> like I'm very, very stretched for time. And frankly, I'm not taking enough time out for myself. Today, I made a bit of an exception. I went for a walk with a friend. Then I went and played tennis with another friend. And then I had meetings and work and things like that. But I... I'm, I'm stretched too thin, if, if I'm completely honest. So I have to try and prioritize. I've got multiple instances of my scripts running here, extracting email addresses from other breaches to try and figure out what to do with them. But it is a very time-consuming effort, and I've just got a heap of stuff to deal with at the moment. And I'm meant to be writing a book as well, which many of you know. Go to book.troyhunt.com and register now. So there's a lot going on. So I apologize if I haven't replied uh, to, to, to some people at times. I've had a lot of people send me uh, a couple of breaches in particular where they're very enthusiastic to get these loaded and they talk about how big they are, but they are, and I'm going to air quote this, they are only several hundred thousand records and I have incidents that are millions, tens of millions or even hundreds of millions to deal with. And no matter how big it is, it takes the same amount of effort from my side except if it's 300,000 records, I get about 1% of the exposure as opposed to if it's 30 million records. Now, when I say exposure, that, that, that sort of come out the wrong way. It's not like exposure for me. I get 1% of the impact on people. So I'll literally get 100 times more have I been pwned subscribers to get notifications, people that search on a site that find something useful. So you, you can see that the value is always going to be in the big stuff and hundreds of thousands of records is small in, in the current scheme of things. Okay, so... Uh, there is that. Uh, Phil says, I have a couple of switch bots and a switch bot curtain thingy and a hub. So the curtain thingy is interesting. I have looked at the curtain thingy and it looks like it sort of sits on the rail and it, it crawls along, which again, I think it's just a, I really like these solutions where it's like, look, we have normal everyday stuff. How do we make it smarter uh, without sort of having to rip things off the wall and stuff like that? So that looks really, really clever. I'm putting in a bunch of new curtains. In fact, we're putting in a bunch of new curtains and carpet and because it's 14 years old, <laughs> it's kind of run down. And uh, one of the, in fact, we had curtain people here yesterday. One of the things we're saying is that like in my office, in the master bedroom, in the kids' rooms, uh, I want automation. Uh, and I want to know what the automation product is because I want to make sure there's an integration to Home Assistant. But I would love to get automation uh, around that. And I think if you're sort of building that in from scratch, it'll be like new curtains and curtain rails and everything. You know, then you can sort of do something a bit more integrated than the, the SwitchBot solution. But the SwitchBot solution is pretty cool for people that already have curtains. Uh, 
Phil says, if I remember rightly, Home Assistant uses Bluetooth to talk directly to each SwitchBot. It doesn't use the hub. Well, Bluetooth ain't going to work for me because there is way too much distance between the Home Assistant. um, Although it's interesting. I wonder now if I go and put this down near my Home Assistant instance if it will work. I don't even have a Bluetooth dongle, though. There's not Bluetooth natively built into a Raspberry Pi 4, is there? Uh, So anyway, I need distance. So this, as far as I know, should be able to control this. In fact, one of the, the tests I did is um, is I, I did just go some distance away uh, outside of Bluetooth range and I triggered it. I can't remember how I established it, but basically the hub can instruct the SwitchBot bot itself. Phil also says, I think I had to add the BT MAC addresses to each of the switches in YAML. Okay, well, this is what I got to look at. I, I definitely had to add the MAC address of the hub in order to get it to show up. That was part of the configuration. Um, I wonder if I add a MAC address for this, if the hub would talk to... i tell you what, if I figure it out, and it seems useful, I'll put it in a blog post because some other poor bastard like me is going to come along and try and figure this out and be absolutely driving themselves nuts trying to work it out, and then there'll be a blog post. We will work that one out. No Brain says, uh, I wish to buy Prusa, but the customs duty sucks. Here they charge 50% for the price... Uh, yeah, it sucks. Uh, it wasn't 50% they charged me, but it was still hundreds of dollars. And when I looked at it, I, I think it ended up being pretty equivalent to buying it by a reseller. So, so check, because there are resellers. So you can, I don't know where you are, but in Australia, you can buy it from a reseller. But uh, yeah, I got it direct from the source. Uh, what are your thoughts on free to tools? Don't know what's free to tools. <laughs> so I can't help you with that one. Now, I did have one other thing I wanted to talk about. I put this on my list because I saw it pop up. And just getting back on the InfoSec track for a little bit. It's a good tweet here. Jason Living Living Good. That's a good name. Living Good. Checking in on web encryption. In my opinion, we can now declare the entire web fully encrypted. According to Google stats, as a percentage of user time, between 95 to 99% of user time on the web is encrypted. It was 50% in 2017. Huge wins. Thanks to many orgs like Let's Encrypt EFF Mozilla. And he's got some stats in here about uh, how that has changed over time. Now, I think he's a little bit liberal with saying, declaring the entire web fully encrypted because there there are two very absolute terms there, one being entire, one being in fully. Um, 95 to 99% is not not quite that. But let's not get too bogged down in the detail because it is an amazingly positive number. And we've seen a wonderful uptick in adoption. In fact, there's a, there's a good resource. If you go to lessencrypt.org for such stats, they always publish stats from uh, Firefox Telemetry. And what they show here, when it finally loads, is it's loading 14-day moving average. So for all users, it's kind of odd. They break it down by all users, USA users, Japan users. Now, for all users, we're somewhere at about the 85% of all web requests being made over HTTPS. Uh, and, and what's kind of interesting about this is that we had really, really big growth. In fact, the biggest growth we had was over the, the, uh, the year 2017. But now it's very, very much stagnating because 2017, we went from, let's call it 50% up to 
oh geez, almost 70%. So massive growth in that one year. But now we're getting to the long tail. So it's going to take a long time to get those last ones across the uh, across to the secure connection channel. But it's also interesting to look at how stats are broken down because Let's Encrypt is focusing very much on the percentage of web pages loaded, whereas this other figure over here was very much around the percentage of time. Now, I would imagine that if you spend a lot of time sitting there reading Facebook, it's obviously encrypted end-to-end. End-to-end, wrong word. It is encrypted from where you are to somewhere else. <laughs> Remember, that doesn't necessarily mean to the other end. It could be a network load balancer in front of the web server. It could be, uh, let's say, in the case of, of people using Cloudflare, it could just be terminated Cloudflare, and then it's plain text in the background. You don't know. Other topic, different issues with that. But the trend is really clear, and we are at a massive rate of HTTPS. <laughs> Problem, just add living this a little bit, I tweeted something yesterday because someone raised this. <laughs> so... ZDNet Australia tweeted, uh, AKIC, which is the Australian Crime Intelligence Commission, has said an encrypted communication platform is not something a law-abiding member of the, where's the rest of this, a law-abiding member of the community would use. Now, I read this on ZDNet, served our HTTPS. I went to the AKIC website, and I deliberately went there over HTTP, and it redirected me to HTTPS. I think it was it was quite funny. It's like AKIC themselves want to redirect you. Now, of course, there are many good reasons why they would do that. They're not just all about security and privacy. You do get great performance. I don't know if they're running HTTP2 or not, but you do get some performance upsides as well. But uh, I think more than, than ever, as we get ubiquitous encryption, not just in web browsing, but of course in messaging, and particularly as we get absolute end-to-end style messaging encryption uh we're just going to see these headlines more and more as as we have seen so many times before all right a couple of other quick things here phil says ha uses the hub to talk to the curtain but it's a separate custom integration all right well maybe we just have to look into that and figure that out and then no brain says uh were you into bug bounties so i have not been participating in them myself i have done pluralsight courses on doing bug bounties uh, mostly because I did them with my mate Casey Ellis, who is the the founder of Bug Crowd, one of the one of the two big bug bounty programs. I love the idea of it. I think they're a really good idea, and I have massive respect for people that actually make a living out of them. Some people do, um, not not a lot of them. I think there's again a long tail there. All right, as as we sort of start to round this out, if anyone has any questions, uh, just drop them in there in the uh, in the comments on the YouTube video. Um, going, I was just looking over here at my my wall of screens, but in the screen over here is this inbox just with the number of different data breaches. And these are not just necessarily alleged data breaches either, but these are things that I've found in the news. I mean, there's one I'm looking at here that I started processing today that was in the news last year. It is, it's at least a seven-figure number. Has my little script finished running yet? Um, no. Uh, my other scripts has finished running, and that found 155 million distinct email addresses, which is sizable. Some of you might be able to work out what that one is based on that number. The other script that's running based on the one in this email has uh, has already just scanned through 52,000 lines and found just over 3 million email addresses. Now, 
I won't know until this finishes running how many of them are distinct because basically it just grabs all the email addresses and it grabs a distinct of them. But uh, that is going to be very sizable as well. And every single one of these data breaches consumes on average two hours of my time. So imagine having just in the last week dozens of data breaches and having a lot of other stuff I've got to do in life as well, including a name shit like this. Uh, and trying to actually get through those breaches. And, and that's, that's why there's so much stuff that people send me, which is just not yet processed. Uh, okay, Dale says, do you ever get companies reporting their own breaches? Yes, I do. Maybe if someone has reported it to them first. I do. And in fact, if you go to haveibeenpwned.com and you go to the uh, who's been pwned page and you search for self You'll find a number of data breaches here which were self-submitted. In fact, if we make it self-submit. Uh, so biohack.me, that was self-submitted. Uh, DevKit Pro was self-submitted. The Ethereum Forum uh, was self-submitted. Uh, Landwall, self-submitted. Lights Hope, what was that? Warcraft service, that was self-submitted. Mr. XL, which was uh, from memory of vBulletin XL f- uh, Forum, self-submitted there. Uh, Svenska Magic, <laughs> the Swedish magic website. They self-submitted. Technic, uh, what were they? A Minecraft mod pack platform. Okay. Truckers MP, self-submitted. A trucking simulator. Uh, Wong Nai, uh, what was that? Uh, same persons. Oh, I don't even know. I lose track. WP Sandbox, I assume that's WordPress related. Yep. Uh, and, and one or two others as well, which for reasons that escaped me, I didn't necessarily put the self-submitted flag on. But it, it does happen, and I think what's always interesting with that is that the organization must go through this kind of uh, balancing act of do we want to pick up PII and send it to that bloke in Australia who runs the data breach thing because distributing PII in that fashion for it to be used outside of the scope in which it was intended doesn't necessarily keep with the spirit of how people gave that data to them in the first place. On the other hand, obviously all the data is out there and it's circulating anyway, so what's the best thing that we can now do with it? And certainly what I will say is that every organisation that has sent me data has done so with the best of intentions. Uh, And those intentions have been to make sure that people know about the incident, know about their exposure and can actually do something about it. So look, I think that pretty much takes us through to the end today. Thank you very much for joining in. By the time I come to you next week, I would have been to that in-person conference at OzCert. Uh, and hopefully I will have uh, churned through some of that list of data breaches, maybe the really big ones that I'm looking at just here uh, as a good start. Uh, and then one more question here, Andrew says, do you have a number of unique emails included in all breaches across Have I Been Pwned combined? I just went through and did a massive backup process and the number is just under 5 billion. So given that there are over 11 billion records, and okay, there's about 500 million Facebook phone numbers, but on average... Each email address and have I been pwned has been seen in just over two data breaches. Fun fact to you, Friday. All right, folks, thank you very much for watching. Uh, next week, I'll do this again. And I'm going to do it earlier in my day, which is going to mean probably about 11 hours before this Friday next week. Thanks, everyone.